You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 21st of March 2021 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich and welcome to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's programme, my guests today, Ben Ozog and Thomas Kramer, unpack the weekend's main news stories. Then we'll hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, in London before we head to Tokyo. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's bureau chief in Tokyo. And I'll be talking about Japan lifting the state of emergency and what that means for the country. More from our Fiona Wilson a little bit later. Plus, what's on the pages of Zeit magazine will be with editorial director Christoph Ahmed. It's the 21st of March 2021, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. Well, good morning. From a rather uh, grey, cloudy Zurich, it was sunny skies, a little bit uh, on the crisp and chilly side yesterday. Uh, Still crisp and chilly uh, today, but definitely uh, not the bright sunshine. But um, it says on my script here that Benno Zog is in the studio with his wonderful voice. Good morning, Benno. (laughs) What a charming script indeed. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning to you. Uh, We we can probably thank our Carlotta Ribello uh, for that. For people who are not familiar with the the very uh, fine and uh, friendly voice of Benno Zog, (laughs) he's uh, with the Center for Security Studies at ATA Higher in Zurich. But he's also a security correspondent. I'm not sure what's more important. I mean, have you printing up your own card at the moment? Uh, what, what would come first, Benno? Oh, dear. I mean, printing your own business cards for me would be sad in the first place. That I have would my be. institutional <laughs> ones. Um, obviously, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a tight race. Yeah, They're it is. And it's, it's a very sort of diplomatic question uh, first thing in, in the morning. Um, I'm also happy to say uh, a new voice um, around the microphone uh, here at uh, Dufourstrasse. Thomas Kramer is here. Uh, you might be familiar uh, with Scheidegger and Spies. And if you're not listeners, then you might know Park Books, uh, perhaps even more, but uh, an established publisher, uh, of course, doing, um, well, we'll let Thomas tell you, because uh, they, they, they really sort of do churn out uh, fine editions quite at pace. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Good morning, Tyler. Thank you very much for the nice words. Scheidegger and Spies is getting 60 next year, so uh, we will be celebrating when COVID over. So we, we planned everything that COVID will be finished. I was going to say, the timing is perfect, which, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. which is good. Okay, so for, for those who might see Park Books, because I, I feel if I'm, if I'm in a bookshop in Tokyo or if I'm in Sydney, um, I often sort of see some of the Park titles maybe a little bit more, but I'm not sure what the distribution uh, pattern is. But maybe tell us about, of course, the parent, the original uh, publisher, Scheidegger and Spies first, maybe. Scheidegger and Spies is the biggest Swiss publisher for arts, photography and architecture. Uh, only a bit architecture, super high-class architecture, like Peter Zumthor's book. We are doing a Scheidegger piece. Uh, the rest is uh, art and photography, mostly in German uh, language, but the important books also then in English and French editions. And uh, when when you do them in English and French, still under your own imprint, or would it be a case then that someone would see it, yeah, under under uh, maybe yeah, of course, a, a publishing imprint which is more titled, uh, more more recognizable in their territory? No, we do almost everything ourselves. The reason is that our books are production-wise so expensive that most of the licensing companies then don't uh, can afford or don't want to afford uh, to to license them because it's just as their standardized business models are not uh, really comparable to our very well designed very 
expensively uh, materialized books. Well, we'll come back a little bit later to talk about some of the titles that are coming up. Also, just before we went on air, uh, you were sharing some very interesting news about the state of the market, uh, but we'll be chatting about that in a bit. I'm also happy to say our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, uh, is uh, standing by. We don't know where he is today. Uh, I believe he's in the UK. Um, Otherwise, they would have had a big net uh, to keep him uh, trapped at the border. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. You find me in London, Tyler, in in my home, actually. (laughs) Yeah, we we, we wouldn't want the authorities thinking anything else. Uh, Andrew, how... (laughs) Andrew, uh, how, how are things uh, today? We saw that there was, um, it got a little bit um, interesting on the streets uh, in uh, in London yesterday. Uh, we saw protests and it, as Emma Nelson was saying um, in the news wrap at the, tar- at the start of the program, uh, really it seems to have, I wouldn't let's say properly kicked off, uh, but we've had some uh, you know, sizable protests here in Switzerland yesterday, of course, uh, north of the border here in Germany um, as well. Is this sort of what happens with the autumn buds uh, as well? The days are improving. Andrew, uh, so it's time to let off a bit of steam, more more than usual, anyway. Well, it's interesting that it's it's very easy to dismiss the, these demonstrations as you know a, a group of crackpots and anti-vaxxers and people more on the fringes of politics. But yesterday, the numbers were large. There was several thousand people who attended the, this demonstration. Uh, there were arrests made. It did get violent in some parts with uh, bottles being thrown at the police. But because of uh, problems over policing of demonstrations over the last couple of weeks uh, to do with the killing of Sarah Everard, that the police did allow this demonstration to grow a little bit in numbers and to take place. So. It's interesting having in the past people just stayed away because they felt that they would be arrested. So anyway, there were more people. It, 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 is, it, it is a demonstration that actually that more people in the centre maybe and more younger people were, were attending that event as well. So not just people who were perhaps political kind of outliers. But we're on this countdown to April the 12th, which is when everything will really begin to change dramatically here in the UK, when you can go to a pub or a restaurant and eat outside. And that doesn't just mean sitting on one table outside. Restaurants are putting up canopies and awnings and, and, and great tents and things to take on the crowds. Gyms will reopen. The world will feel pretty on its way back to normal here in the UK on April the 12th. So it's not that long to wait. So it'll be interesting to see whether these demonstrations continue once that has happened. But Andrew, it's sort of in stark contrast. One of the lead stories... um last night uh, on, on the BBC. They were leading with you know, someone saying within government uh, that, you know, again, you, you, you might want to uh, call off uh, all of your bookings for summer holidays uh, because of, of what's happening you know, elsewhere in the world. And of course, how could this come back to, to, to the UK? And you know, we've seen, of course, a really positive narrative about, about vaccines, but there's something about a It's a real political flashpoint in the UK, isn't it? Summer holidays um, and, and you know, this whole notion of will you, won't you? But I'm wondering why there is this air of negativity when the vaccine program has been going so well? Well, you have to be careful with these stories because what happened yesterday was, you know, maybe some of this is coming from government, but there was a, an interview done in the morning where one of the, 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 the advisors to the government on vaccines and, and on, on, on our program about, about taking care of people at this time said, I don't think that holidays are going to be very likely or that it should be allowed because we're doing well and we should dampen down enthusiasm about holidays just in case there's going to be new variants and until Europe gets its its, its house in order we shouldn't be sending people back and forth t- too busily over the summer 
that kind of spun out then across the day. But then if you looked at other papers, if you looked at the FT yesterday, they were getting briefings from government saying, yes, we are looking at a traffic light system for summer holidays to allow them to go ahead. And I think that once people have had two vaccinations, especially, which is, is now rapidly happening here in the UK, it's going to be very hard to say to people, we know you're completely protected. We know it's very unlikely that you'll even pass on on coronavirus if you came in contact with it, but we don't want you to travel. So there is a bit of push and pull. But I think with all of these stories, you just have to kind of catch your breath a little bit and then look back in a week's time and see what, where it's settled down. And the narrative is changing so fast around travel. So I, I, I don't think it's off yet. But I think there is caution just because of the huge numbers we see across the channel, especially in places like France. Um, Andrew, I just want to bring in uh, Benno Zog. Benno, I mean, here there's the, the rollout has been you know, painfully slow in Switzerland. I mean, this is this is one issue uh, where you, you do feel that a lot of uh, yeah, your fellow countrymen are, are hanging their heads rather, rather low. At the same time, though, you know, we've got all the newspapers sitting in front of us. There is quite a big discussion here, though, because there are these these corners of the country, um, you know, hilltops and valleys and and cantons, which are not very pro-vaccine. Uh, and and you've seen, I think probably it's maybe it's a more Germanic thing, this discussion, are we moving towards this, a, a two-class society? And at the same time, when the monitor's behind you, we've got Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, saying, look at, you know, there's going to be no travel unless you're vaccinated. Um, how do you see this playing mm-hmm. out? Interestingly, we have this debate way ahead of anything in reality because yeah. a two-class society would entail five people with complete vaccination, 5% of people with complete vaccination and 95 who haven't even had access to one single shot at this stage. Um, but obviously, it, there, it begs the question of whether such discrimination in the end is even legally enforceable, whether uh, corporations or companies can do that, or whether even the government can do anything along those sorts. And actually, the today's NZZ Am Sonntag newspaper also had the headline that in summer, um, vaccination sceptics may be the ones overwhelming hospitals. The overwhelming hospital and healthcare system has always been the major uh, reasoning for the lockdown in the first place. Um, so now there's focus on these, and there's surveys backing that, that, as you say, certain valleys in central Switzerland, for example, but also the French part as opposed to the German part, is more sceptical towards vaccinations. But let's face it, that may change. And particularly if there are certain incentives, indirect, for example, airlines only allowing vaccinated passengers or other countries, popular tourist destinations, for example, only letting in um, people with a vaccination, then this scepticism may ease as well. And then we have a lot of data that the vaccination is actually not not too harmful. So we'll see how that all develops. Overall, the, the mood towards COVID, the optimism, the pessimism is changing so quickly with a few headlines from week to week. So I think the actual debate we'll have to have in summer when people have actually had the options of being vaccinated or not, because before that, a two-class society will be hugely unjust. Andrew, do you think this is um, great news for, for the big multinational law firms? Uh, because if, if we are going to be heading into to litigation territory, because, you know, obviously, you know, we do see that there's certain people who can't get vaccinated. So, you know, are, are you going to be prevented from from doing certain things either in daily life or or getting getting on an aircraft? And, and I guess what I, I wanted you get a point, do we get to a point as well where, yeah, there are going to be yeah, also special cards for people because they can't be vaccinated, then they are exceptions and they're going to have to be allowed to travel um, or will it be, be completely forbidden for these people? But somehow I can't see that. 
No, not yet. So I, I, I've had my first vaccination. I know that my final one is on May the 25th. It, it was booked in when I got the first one. So I'm, I'm certainly hoping by June they're, 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 part, but they're handing out vaccine passports to the people who had two vaccinations personally. But again, I, I think what's going to happen is you know, that it's interesting what Alan Joyce is saying this morning, but I think you know, it, the, the debate will be taken away from him because I think many countries mm. will say it's down, we, we, we are going to require a certain level of vaccination. You've seen some of the big cruise companies as well saying, look, the only way that we can have confidence about having many senior people back on ships for, for weeks on end is if we know that every single person can, can prove that they've had their vaccinations before they get on board. So I, I, I think there may be some test cases, but I think it's going to be very difficult to resist in the short run. In, in a couple of years, I'm sure everyone will have forgotten about it, but we're already in this situation. There are countries that demand that you've had, you know, yellow fever or you've, you've You've, you've taken precautions before you arrive. And I don't think that that's going to feel that different in the end. And again, we had this debate here some weeks ago. Everyone was saying no, nobody will do it. It's, you know, it's an infringement on civil liberties. And then in every paper, people you know, are falling one by one saying, actually, it is an infringement of civil liberties, but I will give up this, this amount of civil liberties if it allows me to gain back the other rights of travel and freedom of movement. Mm. And Andrew, I want to, um, to bring in uh, Thomas uh, Comer from, from Chicago and Space. Maybe just to move this a little bit to, to a business discussion uh, as well. So on one side, we were just as we were saying before we went on air, it's been you know a fantastic year uh, in, in many countries um, for for the publishing business, maybe, and maybe for the obvious reasons that people have had uh, time time to be at home. Now, you're not in the, the fiction territory, so you would have thought that um, yeah, a lot of people, uh, of course, uh, you know, yeah, sure they're sitting on their terraces, you know, reading um, the latest thriller. Uh, but in your case, um, has it been you know people a bit of architectural porn maybe that they they want to just sort of dream about the uh, that house or that balcony they could build. Um, how's it been for you? It has been a neutral year, one could say. Uh, I mean, of course, all the museum shops were closed uh, almost around the world for many months. So a lot of our uh, more art-oriented books uh, didn't sell as well as they could have. But the rest of it was quite good. Architecture especially was uh, very good. And uh, I mean, the printed sales markets are super stable. In the US, uh, 8% more books were sold last year than in 2019, and it was the highest figure since 2009. So it's really, the the printed book has uh, shown its resilience and its importance, especially since we are always uh, looking to screens all day. When you finally come to the pleasure of reading something you want to, you don't want to read in a screen as well. Uh, Andrew, I'm just wondering, do, do you think that uh, maybe an imprint like, like Schadergrenspies and also uh, Park Books as well has done well because they also have large coffee table books, of course, with very tall and wide spines, which also look very good in the background on a Zoom call um, as well? Do you think that's also part of the story? Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, books certainly are, are, are more than a thing to be read. You know, we, we have these books because they say something about us and they are markers of taste now. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's, it's interesting that people understand that, that the power of literature and photography, that it, it's great to own it and be part of that world. But you're right, the, the, the curating of, of bookshelves around the world has been vital. And just a tiny thing, I saw, uh, our Washington correspondent is called uh, Sasha Isenberg, and he wrote a book about how to win elections. And if some poor liberal uh, Democrat leader here in the UK was on a Zoom call and had it in the, in the background. <laughs> and so a diary, a diary, 
a diarist very quickly picked that up in one of the newspapers here this week and said, uh, it's, it's funny that she's reading a book that doesn't seem to have had any impact on her party's ability to win at elections. Uh, Andrew, so I'm, I'm going to um, have Thomas give you a couple of interesting numbers, which you know your head might explode when you hear this. So, so Shadow and Speech, you, you have 10 staff, correct? Yes. Now, how, how many books, original books, did you, will you put out this year? About 80, about 50 with Scheidegg und Spieß, and about 30 with Park Books. Now, Andrew, what do you think of those numbers? Because we have a board meeting coming up April 1st, as you know, uh, and maybe we don't want these numbers. Well, they're already out in the ether already, but that, <laughs> for someone, we've got a book going out there, it's, that's kind of an, quite an extraordinary accomplishment, isn't it, with 10 people? Well, literally sitting under the laptop to be picked up the second this, uh, this program finishes is, is the proofs for the, our new book on the home, which I will be back to reading straight afterwards. Uh, I might have a word with our books leader, Joe, to say that actually us doing four books this year, I'm not sh so sure why he's, he says he's so busy. Actually, he should be up, upping his game a little bit. Well, Andrew, he's, he, he's, he's so busy chasing me because with that pile under your laptop, he's chasing, he's chasing the editorial director for the opening for the book as well. But I know that I've got till Tuesday afternoon it's only Sunday Sunday morning, and you would have, you would have thought he would have learned by now that he's not going to get it until the end of day Tuesday, may, may, maybe even Wednesday as the files are heading to uh, to, to the presses uh, in, uh, in in Berlin. Uh, just uh, but it's just staying on the topic of publishing, but also um, book trade in, in general. Uh, just and maybe the world of retail. Andrew, how how are how are things? Because you talked about this mobilization um, where obviously you know, tents are going up and and all kinds of things are happening. You know, we've got to, I guess yeah. Three Three, three weeks-ish to run until um, the UK starts starts to reopen. Um, yesterday we saw that some 2,000 pubs have gone under in, in this period. Um, not great news, but do you also think that also means there's going to be a, also a complete resurrection? I mean, some of those pubs probably shouldn't have been around anyway, but um, this also opens up a completely new territory for new entrepreneurs, new chefs to do other things. And do you think we'll see that in, that, in, in this kind of, well, not maybe not this first wave, but over these next three or four months in countries all over the world, that maybe this is also a new moment for new retail, new F&B, et cetera? I hope so. So uh, my, my house is two doors away from a, a really wonderful pub that's been there since 1938. And we saw the, the, the guy who runs it, who has a, a lease on it. We saw him at the weekend and he's, he's run it for many, many years. And he was there because he's, he's finally shutting it up. So he, he's given in. The pub around the corner from that, they handed back the lease when that came up this year as well. So I think there's a lot of people who, he said he's got two pubs, he just couldn't take the risk of it coming in and out of operation again. And he wants to kind of calm down what his, his, his business plan looks like. So I think there are gonna be lots of vacancies, lots of opportunities. But I do feel confident, yeah, as long as it doesn't go into another lockdown, if this time they can remain at this level of operation, I think it could be very good. And there's lots of people wanting to dive in there for summer. The bigger problem we have is, as you know, Tyler, these huge retail units on places like Oxford Street, department stores, there the plan has to be something more interesting. And again, just on that Oxford Street story, you saw this week that the announcement by Marks and Spencers where they've had a store since the 1930s, they're only going to reopen the reopen the, I think believe the ground floor. All the rest they're going to hive off now as offices and as other space for other companies. They just can't afford to maintain those footprints, and that's where you'll see some worries. I think it will be harder to fix on high streets. Um, is there a bit of graphic design work going um, on in your uh, house, Andrew? Maybe Andrew's Ales uh, potentially as uh, <laughs> as the new branding for the pub around the corner. But I I, I think that if you if you had 
you know, if you haven't been bruised during this time, if you've been in, oddly in another business where you've, you've got through the last year okay and you have a business idea, it really is the moment for it because there's going to be a lot of opportunity. And also willingness, we're seeing lots of push through from the government saying to councils, allow all sorts of street events this year, allow food markets, allow, allow anything that regenerates your high streets. Just drop the rules and, and allow for a little bit of... Of, of interventions and adventure and I think that that's where you'll suddenly see a new generation of entrepreneurs coming through over the coming weeks. Thomas just um, tell us quickly uh, your read on on book retail when you look at a big market like Germany when you look at Switzerland I mean Switzerland on one side we have quite a, a big um, you could call it national player within German speaking Switzerland maybe a little bit less so in uh, in Swiss Romand but uh, how, how have they been faring uh, in in these times and do you feel you know positive or reasonably positive that that, uh, that these booksellers are going to endure, given that they've probably generally had quite a good year? Yes, I'm, I'm reasonable, reasonably confident that uh, things will turn out quite well. I mean, the e-commerce part of all businesses, of small local independent bookstores and of the big chains, has significantly risen in the last year, which uh, is a good sign anyway, because transformation to new ways of, uh, of sales is important. And... Uh, What's special in Switzerland is that Ex Libris, the Migros-based online short, they have gained about 25% or so. Which they needed to, didn't they? They needed to, but they are much bigger than Amazon in Switzerland. So Switzerland is one of the exceptions that Amazon is only potentially number three or so uh, in Switzerland. Uh, but anyway, e-commerce is, uh, is gaining a lot of steam and the small independent bookstores, they traded very well this last year because they have such a... Uh, a, a an audience that really wants to go, then wants to support them, and so they are very strong coming out of the crisis. Just before we head back to uh, to the news, um, I want to and Andrew just uh, s- stick around, but I'll, you'll, I'll come to you number two, uh, Benno. At the start of this, if we, if we rewind a year, we saw, of course, so many people wanting to support their local farmers. We saw signs going up, "Support your local bookstore." Everyone uh, was all huggy. Let's make sure that uh, you know we can really get behind our, our neighborhood. Uh, do you see that we will move out of this? Will these behaviors change? And whether it's going back to ex libris to, to to shop online as opposed to walking five blocks to your local bookstore or to your local butcher. Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen? You started the question with let's rewind the past year, which sounds like a terrible thing to do. Um, but I think it's it's an interesting point that you make. And I would argue that there's lots of controversies now. There's lots of debates. People fight more, people bicker more and so on. But what has remained to some extent is still this desire to support your local economy, your local shops and so on. So we still see queues outside of these local neighborhood shops just on the way here this morning, um, outside of bakeries and so on, where I've never seen as many customers as before. So I'd assume that at least some of that will persist even after that. And that may entail pubs as well, because people are so eager to to venture there again and to, to, to hang out and enjoy that. So ideally, that's what will persist, whereas all the political debates and so on will, will probably remain as hostile as they are as they are now. So I'm quite confident about that. But the move towards e-commerce, um, as Thomas also hinted at, that's certainly a thing to stay. But as long as local businesses have found ways by necessity in the past year, they can be part of that business. It's not only the Amazons that may do well. And I think that's an important change to a year or two ago 
when everyone was talking about small independent shops actually dying. Now they find alternative ways to actually still be around. Andrew, what, what um, your take on on community support? Really, uh, I mean, and let's say the pubs. Uh, to one side, but when I think about, yeah, the local players uh, who are whether they're in the publishing space or they're out selling selling garments, uh, you know, will will we see a wave? Because we've also seen the UK government talking a lot about your know, protection and and marketing for local high streets, uh, and and as you said, this is also you know butted up against the fact that you've got all of these massive stores, which, yeah, really are quite literally past their sell by date. Well, uh, what we're seeing here in the UK is many big corporates saying that even when we get back to a position where people can go to work safely and the the government says go back to work, they're going to still put in place this idea that you only go into the office maybe two or three days a week. So that means that lots of people will stay in their local communities for five days where they only used to be there two days. So those local services will, will benefit long term now. So there is definitely going to be a move out to the suburbs. And a very interesting story in one of the papers this morning saying that actually, because maybe people only have to go to the office two or three days for the next couple of years, that what, what you think of as the commuter belt is going to expand from being you know, 30, 40 kilometers outside a city to up to 100 kilometers outside a city. So they're saying for London, people who even know they know they're going to commute are now looking up to 100 kilometers away to the city and thinking that would be an acceptable trip to do a couple of times a week. So again, I think it's going to be, the problem's going to be in the big cores of cities like London, unless you have ambitious retailers, but in the suburbs and in these local neighborhoods, you will continue to trade well if you're owner-managed, and you really know your community. Uh, and Thomas, so we've seen in Zurich uh, and, and elsewhere in Switzerland, but maybe there's been some high profile stories of some very established uh, bookstores, some changing hands. Uh, they've been around for a very long time. And, and we've seen, of course, either staff taking them over, or they've gone up for sale. Um, is, is there a future for them or is it going to be the big oral fusilies and the, the payos in the in Swiss Romans who, um, who endure? Yeah, you know, in a way they are in a bigger risk than the small ones, the independent ones, as uh, Mark just told. Uh, and uh, that's one of the bets. Are our inner cities incre- uh, going uh, less trafficked all the time or not? This is one of the of the important questions. How will they fare in the future, these big book department stores? But uh, I'm quite confident because they are, as in Switzerland, they are quite well equipped with all with everything, but they are also very, very swift in adapting their models and uh, changing their environments and things like this. One will always uh, be staying across here. Um, someone who is going to be staying across or is across, hopefully, all of the news headlines is just coming up to uh, 10.31 here in Zurich. Emma Nelson's here with the news. Thank you, Tyler. The Australian airline Qantas says passengers wishing to fly with them will have to have been vaccinated against coronavirus. Chief Executive Alan Joyce said they have a duty of care to passengers and crew. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of protesters have taken to the streets in Germany, Britain and other European countries to demand an end to the coronavirus restrictions. Russia's ambassador to the UK has accused Britain of breaking its treaty obligations by raising the cap on its stockpile of nuclear warheads. Andrei Kalin said the political relationship between London and Moscow is now nearly dead. And an Italian army tank has accidentally blown up a chicken coop near Pordenone during a training exercise. The tank was taking part in nighttime military exercises when it mistakenly fired on a nearby farm. Or can only imagine the smell. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich.
I am another one to keep the lawyers busy uh, <laughs> as well. I wonder what the payout's going to be. What does that insurance policy look like? Do you, do you sort of one wonders? I've no idea. The only thing that I can remember, though, is that I have an Italian friend once told me that there are only three things that you can eat with your hands, and it's the three Ps. It's pizza, patate, and pollo. So I can just imagine that the military uh, the, the, the military <laughs> would have eaten extremely well that night with an impromptu roast. I'd add maybe polpetta as well, but, but only if they're sort of uh, over an aperitivo. Thanks, Emma Nelson. We will uh, turn our attention uh, to to the to the papers. Uh, Benno, just uh, we were looking uh, a little bit earlier uh, at Enza uh, Deram Sontag. Uh, there's quite a large story this morning. Uh, a big a big sit down interview with uh, the the uh, well foreign minister here in Switzerland, uh, Mr. Cassis, uh, and very much I would say sort of a reflection off the back of obviously. Uh, discussions in China uh, at, at the moment. Uh, what, what does he have to say? As, as, as not, not just from a Swiss context, obviously, but obviously the bigger China story around this. It fits well in the actual headlines uh, across the globe this week about great power competition, particularly between the US and China, but also US and Russia and so on. And it so happens that Switzerland uh, published its China strategy this very Friday. Um, its first country-specific strategy in the first place, and it's been picked up by the papers and the media across the board quite controversially, because a country like Switzerland, emphasising its independent foreign policy, its bridge-building role between major powers at times, is in a very tricky position to deal with the challenge of a rising and more assertive China. And these are the things that the China strategy and the foreign minister in the interview also raises, as in there are more human rights violations, even though the strategy nor himself named them particularly. There's no mentioning of Xinjiang or Hong Kong and so on. Um, and at the same time emphasizes these strong and growing economic ties between the two countries. And that's really the, the, the tension that Switzerland is in and many other countries as well. Um, and it's also trying to have this middle position between the US and China and trying not to having to join a specific camp because camps are very much building and Chinese foreign ministry has reacted to that and hinted at this rising Cold War mentality that is out there. So within that huge dispute that we've seen this week, Switzerland is trying to find its place and is fairly vague on a number of parameters. So that's a challenge to, to remain. Uh, accordingly, the newspapers have not received the strategy or the interview with the foreign minister too favorably. Mm. I believe we can uh, get back in the car and head up to uh, Berlin. Uh, Christoph Amann, editorial director of Zeit Magazine, is there. I think he's made his coffee now. He's probably pulled on his sneakers. Uh, guten Morgen, Christoph. Good morning, Tyler. Hello. Hello, hello. Uh, very, very good uh, to, to speak to you. I want to maybe just jump to, uh, of course, uh, the the cover of, of your current issue, which uh, which is quite an interesting one. I'm trying to sort of reach reach across uh, and, and find it. But you have you have a piece um, in in the cover uh, in in your cover story, um, which which really looks at uh, yeah the, the first black footballer uh, in yeah. in Germany uh, and and in that classic people who know Zeit magazine. Uh, you've done it in a, du- a double cover uh, fashion, but maybe just. Uh, set that up for our, our listeners. Yeah, so the team this week um, came up with this um, pretty moving cover story um, of two former national uh, football players, two generations, both of them are black. Erwin Kostetter was actually the first black uh, football player in Germany and playing in the national team in the 70s. And uh, 
he, for the first time now, um, met and, and, and had a conversation with Gerald Azamoa, who was in the German national team um, 25 years later. And they, these two men sort of reflect on their lives and how they experienced racism um, in, in the football world, but also, you know, obviously generally in Germany. And, um, and it's very moving because, you know, the, I mean, Kost is a, I mean, he is really sort of a movie. His, his life is really sort of deserves to be turned into a movie. I think it's, um, I mean, how this guy really survived um, all the things that happened to him. You know, just to give you an example, after his career in 1990, um, uh, a, a, a penny arcade in, in the north of Germany um, experienced a robbery. And there was one witness talking to the police. And he said, well, he had um, uh, he had seen Erwin Kosteter, you know, the former football uh, player, um, and, and sort of told the police, well, it was him, you know, the, the, the guy who robbed this, this uh, arcade. And... Um, so they arrested him and put him in prison for six months, and he was totally innocent. And in the end, it turned out that the only reason why he got arrested and why this uh, witness thought it was him, because he only knew him as a black person. Um, I, want, yeah. I want to um, to maybe just jump down a few more pages uh, in the issue. There's uh, You have a headline, uh, Viel Arbeit, wenig Geld. Um, yeah, so uh, lots of work, uh, little, little money. Uh, and it's this wonderful, uh, just this beautiful illustrated spread. Uh, Hunter French um, is, is the illustrator. Uh, Julia Friedrichs wrote, uh, wrote the story. And, and again, it's just, it's, uh, I say sort of classic Zeit magazine style. Um, you know, it, it really sort of runs uh, at, at length. But again, um, yeah, the editorial director's summary of, of, of this piece and the, maybe the commissioning around it. Uh, Julia Friedrichs has been uh, a contributing writer for the magazine for a couple of years now. She's uh, she's also famous in Germany for doing uh, a TV documentaries about sort of the, the bigger general topics, uh, as in this case, um, the the situation of the German middle class. Um, and um, she's just uh, published a book about this, so she wrote a piece for us in the magazine. And uh, it's basically about how sort of the the chances of making, you know, moving upwards for the lower middle class people in Germany have diminished within the last uh, 30 years in a very dramatic way. And she um, portrays um, uh, to, uh, uh, people who are sort of standing for this situation and and also reflects on her own life. Uh, you know, when she was a uh, she was a teenager in the 1980s, she had a music teacher um, uh, who would teach her, you know, to play instruments. And so she profiles a couple today who are music teachers as well. But the difference is that they don't have um, unlimited contracts. So their situation is uh, so much different to the music teacher that would teach her in her childhood, in her teenage years. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, it's a very, um, it's, a very it's a great book. And I'm going to have a live conversation uh, Tuesday evening if you want to join uh, for uh, at Tide Live on um, uh, online with Julia uh, talking about her book and about the situation.
Okay, that's that's the first plug that you get um, on the segment. But I'm going to give you a second plug as well because <laughs> if 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 we if we go to uh, what page are we on? Page ten. Uh, you have the most delicious picture of of uh, grilled cheese that I've ever seen, and then there's also <laughs> this wonderful spread of of crepes as well. Now, uh, I, I would like to think that uh, you broke this story with us, but uh, no no great industry secret now that uh, that Zeit Magazine, of course, is looking at um, a culinary spin. So is this the, you know, the sticky hands of the editorial director in the main magazine uh, start, starting to push a bit of a food agenda more than usual? <laughs> <laughs> I love that picture as well. I'm, I'm glad you're mentioning it. I mean, it's Silvio Knizovic, uh, our food photographer based in Munich, who's also a trained chef, which really uh-huh, shows, okay. I think, in his, in his photographs. And actually, I love cheese sandwich. So I, I, was, I, I really love that, that so simple recipe. Um, that Elisabeth Reta, our food columnist, uh, wrote for this week. And actually, yes, I mean, we're working, we're right in the middle of working of, uh, on, on our uh, Zeitmagazin Wochenmarkt uh, standalone title that will be published in uh, late summer, early March, uh, early, early fall. And uh, so, yeah, this is going to be the sort of the look and feel for the whole magazine. So look forward. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it is, it's absolutely uh, s- stunning. Um, I just want to um, maybe just uh, broaden the discussion a little bit. I'm not sure if you saw this morning's edition uh, of, of NZZ uh, um, Zontag, but there's a there's a story which, of course, is you know I think probably very much uh, of our time. But they they devote a cover um, here, which is uh, we you know we have a pe- we have Kate Winslet. Um, and uh, and Sarah's Ronin, and it's it's again it's the con- the controversy around in this case, uh, yeah, heterosexual women uh, playing lesbian roles, and then massive headline across the paper which says you 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 know you can't play that, um, and and then the paper goes into a large sort of dissection about the topic as to who can can play what, and I would say probably an in, in contemporary NZZ style, um, it really you know comes down on maybe the, the Swiss side of, of maybe pragmatism um, and and maybe a little bit sort of saying, raising more than a few question marks around this. How would a story like that play out um, in, in, in Germany? Because a lot of people here when you speak to editors uh, say that the German press is starting from a, let's say, from a political correctness point of view, starts to reflect America and maybe not having as much of a discussion that, that should be had because we know that a lot of this gets drowned out. But what's the temperature from your, your view in, in Germany um, at the moment? Is there, is there still room for considered discussion in your pages? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, the, the success, especially of Zeit, of the, the, the weekly paper, um, um, stands for sort of being open to you know, different points of views. And I think it's, you know, we have a... Uh, a very um, strong, uh, in, in the original sense of the word, liberal, uh, uh, you know, tradition within the paper, where sort of different points of views are expressed, sometimes even on the same page. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you look at a, sort of the, the, those big debates, like you know, representation uh, in, in movies, I think it's a it's a it's a big topic to talk about. Um, and I think. Um, you can either, you know, you have to look at the sort of the, the liberal point of view for, for, for arts and how to express themselves, but also maybe rethink some of the, you know, some of the traditions or some of the things that happened in the past. I think it's, it's, it's really important to be, to be open to both sides, I think.
Mm, no, it's 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 anyone who um, wants to and not not to go, not to go and plug a German newspaper or German language uh, newspaper, but it's a it's an interesting ba- I think sort of quite a, quite a balanced discussion that we're maybe not seeing so much in uh, in, in the English media at the moment. Um, with uh, just thinking about all of your other bylaw coming out uh, for our listeners, uh, so Zeit, uh, I guess in terms of uh, fashion coverage and specials and other things that are coming on to newsstand uh, soon, Krista, what can what can we look forward to from Zeit Magazine aside from I guess what Markt is is, uh, is more autumn, I believe. Correct? Yeah, that's it's, it's going to be out in early September. The first uh, the first issue. Um, yeah, we're working on uh, always working on new supplements and ideas. Uh, maybe even going into another country this year. We'll see. Um, mm. We're thinking about this. You can you can have a guess which country I'm thinking about. I can have a um, guess. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and it's a German, another German-speaking country. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, so we're, we're thinking about this as well, and um, also working on new podcasts um, um, at the moment um, that we would like to launch for, from the magazine. Um, and um, so yeah, so there's a lot of uh, new things uh, will be you know will be coming up in the next couple of weeks and months. And finally, just before we go, um, men, the men's supplement. Can we look forward to uh, the men's standalone uh, this year? Oh, that's right. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's coming. It's See, coming. I was trying. I was trying to set you up for it. Yeah, we actually, I only promised two plugs. You get a third <laughs> plug now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for this. Um, Type Magazine Man, our standalone men magazine, uh, is actually published in the last week of March. Um, so it's going to. Yeah, we already sent it to the printer. Uh, first issues, I think, will will you know send to us. I think next week. And so uh, Tuesday, the last Tuesday in March, it's going to be on the newsstands. So I'm really looking forward to um, to, to bring it back from uh, from since last fall. So it's a it's a biannual. It will be our first one that we'll produce this year. Well, we are clearing space on our newsstand here in Zurich, at least. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, Christoph Amund, always uh, a pleasure to speak to you uh, up in Berlin. That was Christoph Amund, uh, editorial director of Zeit Magazine. Uh, we're heading to Tokyo right after this. What can you learn in a minute? More than you think if you subscribe to Monocle's daily email newsletter. The Monocle Minute provides fresh analysis of breaking news and direct-to-your-inbox insights on everything from global affairs to entrepreneurship. On Saturdays with the weekend edition, we'll widen your horizons with rye observation, drinking and dining recommendations and must-know openings, plus Tyler Brule's worldly weekly column too. Subscribe now at monocle.com minute. back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Just uh, 10.46 here in Zurich, 18.46 in Tokyo, where we're heading now. Our bureau chief, Fiona Wilson, is standing by. Good evening, Fiona. Hello. Good evening, Tyler. Now, tell me, this was uh, the day that uh, the emergency uh, measures that uh, Tokyo has been living under uh, for some time now have been lifted, also off the back of, well, maybe not surprising, but of course, rather deflating news that uh, the world uh, is not going to be flying in uh, for for the games. This is going to be a a wholly Japanese affair, uh, certainly in in the stands, different, uh, of course, on the playing fields. But maybe first, just the the emergency measures being lifted um, in, in Tokyo much visible uh, difference or will we notice something maybe more tomorrow? Yeah, that's right. The uh, state of emergency, it sort of expires uh, at the end of the day today. So uh, I wouldn't say it's exactly back to business as usual tomorrow. They're still saying, this is for Tokyo and three prefectures around Tokyo. They're still saying, can restaurants 
close early. They're asking, requesting restaurants to close at nine. So it's not a complete sort of lifting of restrictions. But I think psychologically, it's a it's a big step. Um, although I have to say, we've had absolutely bucketing rain today. So there was uh, no sense of <laughs> anything being lifted today. People could barely set foot outside today. So um, I think nature has intervened to ensure social distancing. <laughs> uh, but I, I was going to say also that um, Prime Minister Suga um, as well, he also off the back of this said that um, there's really been quite a quite a steep decline uh, in numbers uh, as well. So I guess evidence of the fact that this was was all work it, all worth it, and also in the work up to uh, certainly to 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 the Olympics uh, that this is uh, why these measures were taken. And and I guess obviously he's buffering himself a little bit by saying, okay, uh, obviously along with it with the Japanese Olympic Committee um, that we're going to yeah be keeping uh, visitors out so we can have a whatever a safe games might look like. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, numbers have been a little bit, it's been a bit up and down. It's not quite the the complete decline, I think, Suga would have been hoping for. Um, And a lot of people have said that, you know, and in fact, when they talked about lifting the uh, restrictions, you know, Koike, the governor of Tokyo, was not so enthusiastic. I think really only the governor of Kanagawa was really pushing for the restrictions to be lifted. The other three governors were a bit like, let's wait and see. Numbers haven't declined enough. So I don't think we're really out of the woods yet. But I think, you know, you've got the school holidays coming up uh, very soon, week after next. You know, obviously a big decision coming about whether even Japanese spectators will be uh, going to the Olympics or at least what kind of numbers. So I think from his point of view, he just wanted it to, he was hoping, I'm sure, that it looked as good as possible. But yeah, I think the Olympic decision was inevitable. It was unthinkable that they were going to allow um, non-residents, overseas spectators in. So no big surprise there. If you're on that, and as you said, it, it didn't um, really sort of take anyone as much much of a shock that that was the decision. What has that done for, I guess, for for, for Japanese fans and certainly the the Japanese uh, that that sense that yeah we've been discussing this again over over the past year that they, that you know that yeah Japan has not been that enthusiastic about the games and it's really sort of been waning in terms of of popularity. Now that everyone, um, in a way, has to sort of be there to be, to put on a, a good face, do you think that there's going to be a different type of momentum? Also, I guess we we'll we'll see the torch um, uh, land in Japan or Olympic flame will land in Japan, uh, and of course the, then you know the, the the relay down to Tokyo, of course, uh, starts over the coming days as well. Yeah, that's right. The torch relay starts next week. I mean, that's been a huge kerfuffle as well. And, you know, it's a bit sad. No, Nobody at the ceremony to, to send it on its way. And they said if anyone is watching on its route, uh, no cheering is allowed. <laughs> so it's not, it's not going to be the sort of triumphal route around Japan I think they might have been hoping for. And I think with the spectators here, it's really difficult to say what's going to happen because, you know, we have been having sporting events here, um, limited numbers. So, it is possible to imagine, you know, there will be, if not, a, you know, a full stadium, there will be uh, Japanese spectators. You know, I mean, it's such a shame. People here really were enthusiastic about the Olympics. They weren't as cynical as, you know, we've seen in other places. But I think, uh, you know, really this this year was obviously not, not the ideal year to, <laughs> to have it understatement. And I think that really at the moment, we don't know what's going to happen with the numbers for Japanese spectators. They said they're going to refund. I think they'd sold 630,000 tickets overseas. They're going to be refunded. Now, whether that means those tickets come to Japan and you're going to see more Japanese fans isn't clear yet. They're holding off on that decision. And I think that will come much closer to the event. Um, But no, I mean, you you know, it's turning into just a televised event. But I think people here who can go will, will be enthusiastic for sure.
Uh, finally, just before we go, uh, speaking of crowds and 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 trying to, uh, of course, manage them, uh, Sakura season is is fully underway. Uh, probably not all the way up and down the country uh, at, at the moment. I can certainly say in Switzerland, the, the cherry blossoms uh, are are out uh, as well. Is are there special uh, flow management uh, measures in in place uh, in, in some of the, the major uh, venues where one goes to to walk under the cherry trees? Absolutely. I mean, it's much more sort of stringent than last year, interestingly. Um, in fact, you know, the, the parks about, you know, all the public parks that, that are around us, they're all looking like crime scenes at the moment. There are orange barriers absolutely everywhere. You can't go near the cherries. It's strictly for looking. And big signs everywhere saying no eating, drinking, don't sit on benches, wear masks, keep your distance. So it's a very, very different um, cherry blossom season this year. Um, you know, but I think, again, no big surprise. And you know, they, they're not doing some of the illuminations they would do in Tokyo normally, like in Wayno Park. That's not happening. And um, it, they really would just want people to look forget the usual drunken picnics um, that we've all enjoyed over the years um, in the chilly weather. Um, not doing any of that this year, but just just looking as, as you go by. <laughs> uh, you paint an absolutely uh, de- delightful <laughs> picture. Uh, Fiona, well, I'm sure we'll be catching up uh, later in the week, of course, as, as the torch makes its debut. Uh, and uh, will, you, will you be out sort of masked and just making hand movements? Is, is it coming through Tommy Guys? Is it going to pass near the bureau? I have to ask. I mean, it, wouldn't that be brilliant? It, you know, I have to say, it's coming very close to the Bureau, so I think we might have to have a little uh, delegation for a silent uh, wave as it goes by. Excellent. Our Fiona Wilson uh, in Tokyo there. Thank you very much. Uh, Thomas Kummer uh, from Shadowgun Spies. I wanted to uh, to maybe uh, ask you, um, and we, we've seen that the Pritzker Prize uh, was, was of course, uh, reached recently um, announced. Uh, big news um, around that. When um, when you, of course, uh, maybe have the good luck of, of, of course, already perhaps, you know, to, to have contracts or to be working with uh, with architects in that territory, is, there, is that also a moment of, of delight and cheering in the office um, when when a prize like the Pritzker is given to, of course, you know, certainly an imprint which is doing so much in the architecture space. Yes, of course. I mean, the, the interesting thing is prize and awards in the book world are not that important. Nobody knows it, but if you win most beautiful Swiss books, you will sell two copies more. So uh, this award thing is something that's purely idealistic in a way, and uh, doesn't. Uh, and so it raises the spirits of everybody involved, but it hasn't uh, any market consequence. Mm. But what about when it's a, when it's an architecture prize, though? If if I'm a fan of of a Zumtor, if I'm a fan of someone who's who's picking up a book, I mean, a, a prize for accomplishment and achievement. Um, what what does that mean for for sales? Does that do you suddenly see a spike? It, in that territory? Yeah, but a, a very modest spike. Hmm. Because it's interesting, in, in a way, architects have made their reputation through the daily, weekly, monthly newspaper or architectural newspaper or word of mouth uh, coverage. So these awards are not that important in the in, in as a consequence for the sales of books. Tell me what um, is coming up um, when we look at the yeah, spring season ahead. Uh, maybe three three titles you're very excited to see come off the press uh, and and hit bookshelves uh, over the coming weeks or months. We'll have two books on Sigurd Leverens, the most important Swedish architect in architectural history. One is a 800 uh, page complete drawings, uh, work thing uh, done with Arctis, the Architect, uh, Architecture and Design Museum in Stockholm. 
Uh, then very important for us is a, a very special edition in a beautiful slipcase 17 conversation by Peter Zumthor with his favorite film director with Wim Wenders with his favorite photographer Elaine Bine. So 17 stitched booklets in a wonderful slipcase. Uh, it's a high bet financially. So for us, it's a, the question, will it work? half as good as the complete works, which were very expensive work because they were sold about 25,000 times. Uh, here it's certainly much much smaller, but uh, nevertheless, it's a, it's a book we try to bring around the world. And when you talk about that many stitched volumes, uh, of course, I'm sure there's many people wondering, where, where is this happening? Is it, is it Italy? Is it Germany? Is it Switzerland? Uh, where, where is this fine printing being done? Most of our books are printed at a small printer in the east of Germany. They have their own bookbinders in-house. They have the best pre-press uh, department I know. But we also produce some of the books in Switzerland, some of them in Italy, but that's it. No, some of them in Austria with a very sustainable printer. Uh, so he's a big ecological awareness. But we, we never go to, to China or something like this because also for our super high quality production standard, it's difficult when you can't speak the language of the printers. Mm. Our, uh, Andrew Tuck is uh, back in London. Andrew, um, eight, you, don't have, you don't have 800 pages to read today, do you? Or maybe you've got Confect. So maybe you take the house, Nolan's Holmes book he's doing, and the new Confect. Maybe that does sort of tally up to 800 pages to proofread today. Uh, I, I wish it was... Uh 800 pages, but uh, sadly, it's not. Uh, we're, we're, we're a bit leaner on the number of pages we put out in our books. But uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something about books at this time that feel very special. And, you know, and again, you do these books which have longevity, like the Holmes book, but of course, they can't help but feed off the time that we're in. And this time is of, for when you come to homes and architecture, I think people are considering it in, in more rich ways and in more important ways than ever before. And Anna, just very quickly before we go, what are the next two books? So everyone knows the Holmes book is coming up. And what else should people be saving up for in terms of uh, our, our own imprint? And then we're going to go back into the world of entre entrepreneurship and business and look at all those, those people who could fill the, in the vacancy at the local pub, could certainly take over a bigger slot on the high street, but also families that have been running businesses for generations and what they're thinking about the next steps in entrepreneurship. And then a great book about the, the, the Nordics heading up north to quite a lot of countries to look at design, social stories, uh, architecture, everything you can think of. Very nice. And just before we go, Benadog, the one big geopolitical or security story that everyone should be aware of over the coming, aside from those crowds that that, that won't be cheering in Japan when the torch goes by. <laughs> oh boy, big question for for the very end. Um, well, certainly, US and China are still on confrontational course, so we'll watch out for that because there's so many dimensions to it, and will it, it will also affect China's neighbours in particular, including Japan. So not only the Olympics to watch out for, but also their position on these kinds of issues. Um, but I'm kind of glad we haven't talked too much about these topics on today's show. I'm, I've received loads of ideas about new backdrops for online meetings and and webinars, beautiful books to look at. And also, um, and also gr grilled cheese as well, maybe for later on. Ben Odzog, Thomas Cromer, Andrew Tuck in London and Emma Nelson there as well. Thanks very much for joining us today. Also to Christoph Amend in Berlin and Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Our producers today, Car Carlotta Ribello, our studio manager in Zurich, Desiree Bentley and Nora Hall in London. I'm Tyler Berlay here in Zurich, Monocle on Sunday is back next weekend. Have a very, very good day. Goodbye.